Economics is regional. There are regional ebbs and flows of money and jobs and opportunities. And if you band together and make a pitch that um, is cooperative and integrative, then you've got a much better chance at progress. Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about our Southeast Ohio communities. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Susan Tebbin. And I'm Aaron Payne. In this episode, we're stepping out of bounds in a way. We're having a conversation with Kevin Kellums, a man who isn't from this area but grew up in a similar environment, graduated with a journalism degree from a school in Columbus, worked for state and national politicians, the Pentagon, and the World Bank. And even for a minuscule amount of time, worked with then-candidate Donald Trump. And yes, he doesn't say much about that short stint, so we didn't dwell on it. We just listened, and we hope you will, too. I'm Kevin Kellums. I'm honored to be here. I've had a really unusual background, I suppose, in government, politics, business. Uh, Got an early start, especially for a guy who's coming from a small farm in uh, southeast Indiana. And um, that included working in the U.S. Senate, uh, also uh, a governor's office. Uh, the Pentagon was there on 9-11, spent some quality time in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, then moved on to the White House, uh, where I was uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney's uh, communications director and press secretary, and then moved on to the World Bank, where I was um, director of strategy and uh, acting vice president. So. It was uh, like getting stuck on the up escalator without merit, um, or maybe a Forrest Gump sort of career. So uh, after visiting 70 countries and 49 states, uh, through mostly through work, but also some personal travel, I decided it was time to go back to the Midwest. And uh, I really claimed two home states, one in Ohio and one in Indiana. I lived in Ohio twice, and uh, as did my parents. Um, but our roots are in southeast Indiana. With your, uh, well, I'll start it this way. We usually ask one question at the start of every interview on this podcast, and um, I will ask you the same one, especially you grew up in a rural um, area, um, Ohio. You, you understand a little bit about Ohio. Um, you've served as uh, in, in public office. You've uh, worked in government chambers and all that. You are uh, uh, part of an economic development um, group. What do rural communities need, and how do we get it? Well, I also was blessed as a young person in living in a number of cities because of my father's career. So we, it was kind of like a, a business version of a, being an army brat. We. We, we kept one home base uh, in a very rural area and then moved every three to five years um, throughout a number of cities. So that helps shape my view of economic development and you know prosperity and progress. Rural areas, it's a real challenge. One of the biggest ones is transportation, making uh, it easy to move goods and services efficiently and in a cost-effective way is usually one of the biggest challenges. Um, that also feeds tourism if it's easier to get to a place um, that's worthy of spending money in your free time if you have either. And uh, then 
I think the big challenge is regional cooperation. In other words, it's human nature to think in silos and to uh, protect your borders. And so we tend to think as counties, like if, and it's a zero sum game. If my county doesn't get what your county got next door, then we lost and you won and vice versa. That's actually not how economics works. Economics is regional. There are regional um, ebbs and flows of money and jobs and opportunities. And if you band together and make a pitch that um, is cooperative and integrative, then you've got a much better chance at progress. And in many cases, you've got to attach yourself to a nearby city and swallow your ego and go across borders and across rivers. In some cases, it's you need to be the leader for your um, area, even though you're smaller, but you're still a leader. In the case of Athens, I would think, obviously having a, a very significant university here in OU, that this county can be a real leader, and I'm sure is, um, in br helping bring along a message that, that that is collective. And and it is, and when we start thinking about the the surrounding counties and the um, farmers who um, are per not, uh, whose land is not being as is, is not in as much use as it once was, um, and government help is not what it once was. And then we start talking about how do you develop jobs? Internet access is uh, absolutely is, it's is, huge. is an issue in here, and this this becomes the area outside of the uh, outside of Athens County, or at least outside of the city. And cell tech uh, reliability, your ability to operate a small business and grow it in a small setting, it really depends on technology. Ironically. Uh, it's your ability to, to receive and make calls that are consistent and to have high-speed Internet access. Um, and that is a real make-or-break uh, set of issues. What have you seen that works, and I'll say outside of the U.S., you've been to uh, rural areas and um, in developing countries, and, and in some very real ways, we have those same problems here. No, that's a fair point, and it is a, a valid comparison. The, uh, I've seen some remarkable examples of the ability for an individual, regardless of their place in life. Uh, you, I'm, honestly, I've been in some of the poorest places in some of the poorest countries, many of them, especially through the World Bank experience and the Pentagon experience. Um, and their ability to access information in a timely manner really is one of those cross-cutting aspects. It's a, it is a factor uh, that in, empowers them, empowers them to make better decisions. Uh, I can remember being in a thatched roof, mud brick hut of a home, um, no disrespect, but that's an accurate description, in Rwanda, and watching uh, the father uh, use an old-fashioned flip phone to find out what the market prices were likely to be that day um, several miles away for the modest amount of corn that he had to sell. And he was trying to calculate whether it was worth the cost of his time and travel and would he make a profit or break even that day. Incredible thing to see, and there are many examples like that. Um, so technology and 
uh, a free and open press, which is very hard to come by in developing countries um, because of the aspect of um, corruption and, and, and power from above trying to you know, maintain control. Those, though, are aspects and factors that uh, equalize um, different uh, stratas of society and, and help people help themselves. You talked uh, about a free and open press you mentioned. Um, I know you have journalism experience way back when. Um, you've been in politics since the late 80s, um, communications director as well. And last night at your talk, you were talking about um, the current administration and how you feel about the First Amendment. And you said, everyone has their tactics. I wouldn't use the current ones. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and how that affects, you know, communities in the heart of America, in Midwest Ohio, of how we hear the communications coming from the government and, and how what you meant by that. I think there were a couple of caveats in that sentence, so we can race to the script and see uh, how I set it up and concluded it. But I think I said something along the lines of there are different ways to approach a same set of challenges in leadership and in governance, uh, and no one's got it all right or got it all wrong. Um, there are times when I would choose to do things differently, and I'm from a little bit of a different school of thought. I was brought up, if you will, as a journalist, uh, and that's what I had planned to do. Um, and I'm a big First Amendment fan, and I like talking to everybody, obviously, not just those who think exactly as I. Um, because I, then I think you have an opportunity to lead uh, by creating a, you know, more cooperation and uh, building some momentum for broad and important um, you know, aspects of, of what your aspirations are to achieve. And so the sort of divide and conquer way of governance that has developed over time, not just under this administration, but Washington is, um, Washington's got the flu, all right? <laughs> So the system is uh, one that rewards um, partisanship and punishes attempts at bipartisanship, uh, more so than I've ever seen. Uh, of course, each generation says, oh, it's worse than ever. And, you know, if you go back far enough in your student history, you can find some really nasty stuff. Mm -hmm. So it ebbs and flows. Um, but I think you've got to you've got to develop a majority who backs your priorities, and you have to listen before you decide. Um, I'm big on free speech and the First Amendment. Uh, I'm big on access to information, transparency, and accountability. The most important thing I think any public leader, whether they're elected or they're appointed, is to listen. Actually, listen to the people. Ask questions and listen before you decide. Now, what usually happens is that there's this charade of uh, you make a decision in private and then you go out and pretend that you're listening and then you announce your predetermined uh, course of action. And that really irritates me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So when you were press secretary, you had to communicate a, a message to a lot of different people from Southeast Ohio to Northern California to middle of Alaska, all different ways of life, all ways of thinking, conservative, Republican, liberal, all that. How did you go about getting your message across, communicating in a way that, that made everyone feel like they were listened to and made everyone feel like you were uh, 
one of them. On, and, or an honest broker. Sure. Uh, that's a great question. It's one that's, you know, worthy of a 30-minute answer, so I'll try not to do that. Go for it. Um, <laughs> it it requires some substance. I mean, it's not just about tactics and technique and style. You know, you have to know the issues and study and dedicate yourself also to the, the fact that as a spokesman or spokeswoman um, or strategist, you're not speaking for yourself. You're speaking for your principal. And there is a responsibility to accuracy and a degree of loyalty um, so a lot of journalists say, well, how can you go from being a serious daily journalist from the old world of print uh, to where you're just, you know, you're really uh, drilling for the truth and looking for kind of an edgy lead to hope that you can land on page one um, to speaking for someone else? I mean, how can you reconcile uh, your loyalty to the truth and your um, – paid loyalty to another human being. There are no two human beings who agree on everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it is something that every person who communicates on behalf of an institution or an individual in government, uh, could be a corporate spokeswoman or spokesman, um, that you have to understand uh, you're being paid to do a job, but there are certain limits and each person defines them differently. And it's an ethical dilemma in a way. and. I, I hope that I, and I know many others, and I admire several people on both parties who were very good at this. I, I know Mike McCurry was one of my early uh, favorites, um, who obviously worked through a very challenging period um, for uh, former President Bill Clinton. But I think, you know, there are a few rules of the road. Information vacuums are suicidal. They're dangerous. So you have to feed the beast. You've got to continue to communicate with various publics and engage uh, the traditional uh, press or fourth estate on a regular basis. If you try not to and try to go around it, eventually it's a failure. Um, so I believe in a robust, independent uh, press and in free speech. And I believe in the competition of ideas. So uh, you're more likely to arrive at the truth as a voter or a consumer when there is a free and open clash of ideas. Um, that's where truth comes out. And uh, so uh, generally I tried or have tried to be a uh, you know an advocate for transparency and accountability and fairness. Now, we're all human beings and you're under a lot of pressure sometimes to do other <laughs> than that. And, you know, I guess you just do the best you can. So I think Finally, you know, as I mentioned at the top, substance matters and character counts, um, and there needs to be some sort of coherent, um, integrative piece of the narrative. There needs to be narrative coherence, you know. So there is something to be said for ideology, although I'm not the most terribly ideological person. Um, but there's got to be sort of an overarching theme that connects the dots for people so they can better understand where you're headed and you can better gauge whether they agree with you and will back it. So you mentioned, you know, art ideologies, partisanship, you mentioned. You don't have a lot of ideologies. Um, you've worked with GOP. I wouldn't say that I don't have many ideologies. I'd say I'm not as ideological as one would maybe conclude by looking at my resume. Fair. Okay. And you've worked a lot with the with GOP, members of GOP um, within your resume. <laughs> um, 
when you started in in the Republican Party or working with the Republican Party, was there a particular image that you have had for for how they were and your political ideology and how it matched with them? And has that changed at all uh, going through and watching the transformation and the change of, obviously, we've had a bunch of different presidents since you started. So That's another huge question and uh, fascinating. 30-minute question. <laughs> uh, Yes, I've evolved. In some ways, I've become more conservative gradually, and in some ways, I've become more uh, libertarian and or agnostic. Um, <laughs> and I think this maybe is a reflection not just of my um, um, journey, but of our polity. Uh, politics has changed, it always evolves. And, um, but you need to have some core uh, pieces that you build around. And for me, one of them is a strong national security uh, posture. Um, it's just in my DNA. And I was in the Pentagon on 9-11, and I spent some quality time in Iraq and Afghanistan, as I mentioned, and, you know, saw uh, life and death struggles and had access to highly, highly classified information about Saddam's uh, brutality. And uh, he was a genocidal maniac and a destabilizer, regional destabilizer. So um, I think that was absolutely the right call, and I can defend it until uh, people fall asleep. Um, what we did after uh, um, the country was liberated, some of the decisions that were made afterwards were mistakes. Um, and, you know, okay, we're all human. Some were learned by doing, but there were a couple of real um, screw-ups that – uh, left us in a position that was not ideal. And um, so I think in a way uh, also market access, uh, this gets back to rural regional development and, and U.S. development generally, but I think market access and free and fair trade. Now that's an important phrase, free and fair trade. Um, it's actually not a cop-out. It's, it's, you have to be tough and open-minded at the same time when you're dealing with self-interested countries because everybody's out there, you know, fighting for an advantage. Um, but I think I, I, I was raised as a free trader, and I still am. Um, my first uh, full-time job was for a U.S. senator named Richard Luger, who had a background in small business and in farming, but ended up being a real powerhouse in foreign policy. Um, and so I think he had a big influence on me as I continued to think through these issues. And you have to be fairly open-minded and try to challenge your own assumptions instead of just going off some sort of boilerplate of talking points. And so you, the more you learn, the, um, maybe the more precise and the, and the better informed your ideology is, um, but there are a couple of aspects that are important to me, and I, you know, I I believe in the markets, and um, that in fact, uh, you know, rising tide can float all boats, but it does require a fundamental level of empowerment of the disadvantaged uh, through some aspects such as, and these are simple things, but powerful and important and difficult to achieve. One is is access to information. One is uh, a free and open and a press that's not intimidated by executive leadership or legislative leadership, regardless of what country you're talking about. Another is clean water, something as simple as clean water, because that gets to health, gets to education. Education flows, I think, in part by access to information. So you can kind of 
hear some themes or aspects of what I feel pretty strongly about and always have, but I learned a lot through uh, the process of these various assignments that I didn't anticipate. Uh, in some cases, didn't even seek. <laughs> uh, part of your resume includes a stop uh, in the office of the governor of Ohio. Um, what lessons, and that was, um, I'm not from Ohio, and I'm guessing that was Governor Bob Taft's it office was. that you served in. Um, yes. What What lessons did you learn during your time there? It came on the heels of me losing a congressional campaign by 1.3 votes per precinct, by the way. So hmm. um, not that I was counting. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, one door closes, another opens. And this was, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was a great experience, but I'm glad I didn't win. Um, and so after that, I was invited to meet with uh, Governor Taft and his wife um, and real on a Sunday realized uh, shortly before and definitely during the moment that I was being interviewed to be his press secretary. A couple of lessons were, one, it is a hard job being a governor of a large state, especially during a presidential cycle in which you, during which you're also serving as chairman of a, a massive presidential campaign in a key battleground state. So uh, I learned a lot about um, the importance of uh, getting a message out and also not screwing up. Um, and it's a tough press corps in Ohio per capita. It's one, I probably go toe-to-toe with any state uh, because there are many markets and it has a tradition of really old-school, tough competitive daily journalism and which now with the transition to uh, online and social media and um, you know podcasts and this and that it, it's a never it's not a daily uh, competition it's a minute by minute competition mm-hmm. so it takes a lot of effort and teamwork and good management he had a terrific chief of staff named Brian Hicks um, who I had met during college, um, and he was our student body president. So sometimes the little things you do early in life end up shaping you uh, forevermore. Um, you, you have been a politician yourself you, in 2011. You had an at-large seat on the Madison City Council, and you uh, at, were on the Economic Development Partners Board. Um, so you, you've been on both sides as a business owner and as somebody that uh, makes decisions that affect businesses, um, as somebody that has served as a, uh, a politician, what, how did that inform your, your uh, thought process when it came to owning a business and business in general in a rural area? Well, not to be terribly ideological here, but I got to tell you, I think uh, the regulation, the the time sink, if you will, the amount of time that is spent is um, in uh, as a percentage of how you work in small business. Um, the smaller you are, the more time you spend at it, as a ratio of end product. So you spend a lot of your time in small business pitching and. Uh, filling out forms and billing and doing your taxes and uh, collecting receivables or attempting to because you're small you don't have much leverage Uh, and government regulation can be streamlined tax uh, requirements in terms of the time to prepare and execute things uh, accurately and faithfully 
can be reduced. And all of that activity does not produce um, income. Uh, it is a, it's a loss every, because the, the scarcest thing you have uh, other than your, I suppose, abilities and contacts and energy level and dedication, the scarcest thing you have is the time. It's time of the principle. And this, this is both true in politics and in small business. So I think um, streamlining of regulations and reduction of regulations and constant um, improvement on an ongoing basis of, uh, of how people have to behave and the amount of work they have to do just to you know, meet all the basic requirements and stay out of trouble. That's a, it's big. And here's why it matters. There are more jobs created and more um, wealth created and people employed in small business uh, as a percentage than anything else. Big business is not where uh, the greatest net new jobs and improvement of income occurs. It is in small business. And uh, that's, you know, it's a big part of the American dream and the American way. And once you're your own boss for a while, you get, it, it's kind of, it spoils you. <laughs> <laughs> Set your own hours and all that. Yeah, and then in some cases you work fewer hours and less, <laughs> e- and less efficiently. <laughs> well, that, that, whether it's on the business side and as a politician, as a business owner, as a politician, or whether it's as a journalist and then as a press secretary, you've, you've been on both sides of – of uh, some very key um, industries or yeah I guess that's how I want to institutions wanna, institutions and farming yeah. farming is a small business it's a really hard one by the way right uh, <laughs> thank God for farmers yeah and there's not a lot of money in it so mm-hmm. yeah. God bless them but and I'm going to go back to your time as uh, in the press department as press sec- secretary during a tough time uh, and with someone um who um, from the outside would seem maybe a hard person to work with or or maybe on the other side of that defend. You wouldn't happen to be referencing uh, <laughs> Vice President Dick Cheney, would you? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Because um, I, I don't agree with that characterization, <laughs> and that's course. why I'm glad you're yeah, raising it. Exactly, because from the, from the outside, yep. it looks one way. And so we uh, speak of uh, the distance between perception and reality. And then, on, but as one, my first executive producer at a news station told me, perception is reality. And and so, well, there is that. And then and there's that. And yeah. so, um, so tell us about the difference between perception and reality, um, <laughs> as you saw it, and in sure. your time in the in the West Wing. I'm, Apparently, we have all the time in the world. <laughs> I'm pleased to. Uh, he's an amazing human being, and I was very honored to work for him. I never anticipated it or expected anything like that. Um, so. I actually had to interview with him to get the job, and having never met him, that was really something to go into the West Wing and know that your life, you're literally at one of those forks in the road, and then it's going to go one way or the other, and the next 15 minutes are going to, are going to determine that. Um, it, you know, you had to kind of channel yourself and remain calm. Uh, <laughs> Somebody cue the Rocky music, cue Eminem, yeah. uh, lose yourself. <laughs> what I found was a, a person with an incredible sense of humor, self-deprecating half the time. I mean, a great listener, a terrific manager, um, but also someone who was willing to um, say his piece and be totally loyal to his boss, the president. 
that's how he viewed the relationship. And one key aspect of that was that when former President Bush, 43, asked um, Dick Cheney to be his running mate, uh, Cheney actually tried to talk him out of it, and he also gave it some thought. And somewhere along the lines, and this is recounted nicely in a few different of their biographies, the vice president elect Dick, Dick Cheney, you know, the person, the running mate said, look, I'm never going to run for president. Uh, and, and I'm, and I mean that. And so what that did was set up a different sort of relationship between the president, and the vice president, because usually vice presidents are gunning for one thing. It's just to succeed the person they're working with mm-hmm. and for, and, uh, I think there was sort of a deal that, okay, um, this is the last job in major public office I'm going to hold, uh, speaking now as if I were um, uh, Richard B. Cheney of Wyoming. And <laughs> therefore, I'm willing to take as many hits as I can for the team uh, and try to be uh, someone who's a blocker and tackler for you and give you more running room. And... Um, it worked out that way. And so there's also a toughness to Cheney. He, there's a piece of him that um, when he knows as much as he knows and he has a firm belief in a course of action, there's a little bit of, okay, take your best shot because it doesn't hurt. You know, I know what I know and I have this view and I give advice to the decider and then he decides. And the other aspect was a remarkable level of loyalty in the sense that even when way inside the system in the West Wing, he would never do one thing. He would never tell you what the president said in private, never. And he would never tell you precisely what he was planning to advise the president. So the the loyalty, any conversation between the two of them remained between the two of them. It was really something to watch uh, because it, it runs counter to basic human nature, you know. Uh, so we all want a sort of self-aggrandizement or I told him this and did you see the outcome and, you know, I have authority. That uh, that was anathema to uh, Vice President Cheney. And that was uh, interesting to watch. And so the challenge for me in part and others – in similar roles, not just in dealing with the media, was there's got to be a little bit of brand awareness because you can go too far down that path um, and then the leverage and the brand strength of the ideas and the advice and statements of the vice president become eroded and therefore one can become gradually less effective, actually. So there's a balance there. And I think we tried to strike it when we could. And then sometimes, you know, you just got to realize you're not number one, you're number two. And you're in the middle of uh, fighting a two-front global war and running for re-election at the same time and a special prosecutor running around, um, you know, crawling up everybody's pant leg uh, and we'll leave more on that for later (laughs) so it was tough so did you see it when you were working with mr cheney as sort of a selflessness or was it sort of a duty to country 
or did he believe so much in what President Bush wanted to do for the country that he was willing to take whatever he needed to do? The answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> All of the above, yeah. That's the best, shortest answer I'll ever give. <laughs> in your time as press secretary, if you reflect from then and now, and now being the age of social media, do you think, I'm glad it was then? The rules have changed. Yeah, so I, I was doing some of these duties in various posts um, as it was starting to evolve more toward where it is now. And, you know, I'm a little long in tooth, um, got an early start, but uh, I was sort of trained as a daily journalist. Now, that is an antiquated idea if there ever was one now, you know, with a focus on print, literally putting ink on paper and uh, then delivering that physical product. That is so outdated now. And so a lot, sometimes the relationships, though, that you got to develop, I think, uh, bore the test of time. I tried to be someone who, when I was getting squeezed by a journalist who I respected and I knew they were just trying to do their job, um, uh, I tried to strike a balance, first loyalty to my principle, um, and when I knew I couldn't go where they wanted to go, it was better to say nothing than to uh, shade the issue. Right, um, or let it start seeping out. Yeah, or not. We're not, you know, I'd rather say nothing than say something that wasn't entirely straightforward. And, you know, it just, you have to have a BS meter inside your own head and realize you're near the line and maybe you should just shut up or explain why you can't, off the record, explain why you can't answer the question. Hmm. So the, out of respect to them. So part of what you've done in, in your career is to coach up uh, other people, whether it be politicians or uh, surrogates for politicians on how to, how to speak to the media. Um, there's obviously, I guess, for lack of better term, certain uh, psychological practices that one uh, approaches when they go into an interview. Uh, how how did you come about figuring those out? Was it something that was like a playbook that somebody gave you? Say, well, if a journalist asks this, then if you don't want to answer this, do something else. Was it or was it something you just picked up from your your time as a journalist? I think a huge advantage with starting as a journalist, thinking as a journalist, and practicing the art of the interview from the other side. So my favorite pieces of the various assignments, both in the private sector and the public sector, has been the sort of coaching aspect, and maybe that isn't the right way to describe it, but that's an easy way to understand some pieces of it. And uh, the moment of truth is when a question is asked and then answered. That's when reality is created or perception is created or um, that is the moment that defines the policy in a sense and explains it to the public. So that moment when a question is asked and answered always fascinated me and that's partly psychology, it's partly political philosophy, it's partly just a hunger for information and the truth. Um, and that, that actually is a key moment. And I, so I, I became just deeply interested first as a reporter and then as someone preparing people for interviews and sitting in on them always. 
uh, just loved it and you know copious note taker and so forth and you know most people like to hear before what do you think and what would you say if a b and c and that's a piece of it but more importantly is um sort of building confidence and getting people in the right set of mindset to uh, do their best um and some people are more natural at this than others and that's like anything else um, in human life some people it's like uh, one of my favorites of all time and i just cherish the fact that I got to work with him was Fred Thompson, the late great U.S. Senator and actor and I mean the guy could do anything. So helping him prepare for a major speech after he had dropped out of uh, the presidential primary uh, that John McCain ended up winning. Uh, So at the National Convention in St. Paul, I got hired, believe it or not, to do what I would have done for free, which was help him think through how to sort of reboot his professional life through a series of interviews, a strategy, a series of interviews, a fundamental message, and culminating in a primetime speech where he just crushed it. Um, And I liken that to being um, Ted Williams' batting coach. I mean, you're you're dealing with one of the greatest public speakers in recent memory with just a larger-than-life personality and a great sense of humor. Um, that in part probably came from being a Southerner. <laughs> and, um, and to be around it and actually have him at least pretend to listen to your thoughts and look at your edits and say, all right, let's go do it. You know, just, <laughs> it was like a happy warrior moment. And that was just a real treasure. So I don't know if I even got close to your uh, answering yeah. your questions, but that was, that's very memorable. And, and, I, and a huge loss, by the way, just shocking, huge loss. And so the Trump surrogates just couldn't, get, couldn't grasp that? I don't even understand what you're talking about <laughs> or what the question is. The two weeks that um, that you – well, excuse me, let me back it up. The time that you were hired to impart this kind of wisdom to uh, those who were speaking for then-candidate candidate Trump – um, the tenure was sufficiently brief that it, it never got to that stage. You couldn't get the, okay. Well, so can I ask? We now have this um, sort of quarrel with truth, where we have empirical evidence being called fake, and we have truths that are maybe truths, maybe not. As a person that has, you know, trained and been a part of trying to talk to people about that sort of thing what's your opinion on all that how do, how do you see that as as affecting the way number one the way news is run and then, then the way that people also are answering the questions and how you would train them to answer these questions does that make sense well i'm not certain you training sounds like you're a lion tamer. Right. I think that's maybe, and I know you didn't mean it this way, maybe overly dismissive of the principle because they are the principle for a reason and they each have the right to um, consulting, advising, run their, yeah, run their show the way they want to run it and perform the way they want to perform it. This is a man, President Trump, who has redefined how to go about winning and how to go about governing. I mean, he's, he's like the ultimate talented pulling a rabbit out of the hat sometimes so you'll think he's 
about to hit a wall and then then he doesn't and have to agree with that it's a remarkable skill set and a, com- a really almost a totally different approach uh, than decades of others have gone about it um, and I always really thought that um, in a world of gray some things are black and white and that's on the back of my business card uh, for the Strategy Center LLC, and you can <laughs> learn more about it at strategycenter.us. Plug. Uh, that quote is on the website, too. <laughs> <laughs> plug. Yeah, plug. In a world of gray, some things are black and white. Washington is a very gray place. There are a lot of shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And uh, life is Alternative that facts. Yeah. Yeah. Well. well, look, I think <laughs> she was taken out of context. I think sure. what she meant was um, this individual spoke to this set of facts and but they didn't speak to uh, these uh, these additional facts and therefore she had a different interpretation I think actually she took too much of a cheap shot and people piled on on that Uh, she's quite talented now we're talking about Kellyanne Conway someone I've worked with and known for many years and and I'll be honest with you, she's got a skill set that's pretty powerful. I don't disagree with you, and I don't disagree that she was taken out of context, maybe using a um, different set of facts instead of alternative. Or, or you didn't phrasing. cover these facts, too. Yeah. Right. It's always right. all about context. It's always yeah. all of that. Um, but at the same time, um, we talk about hitting walls and spin moves. And if you can say, I didn't say something when you're on a record of saying something. or You eventually pay for it. Mm-hmm. You always pay. <laughs> you pay now, pay later. Some people pay less than others, though, and that's kind of what I was getting at at the beginning of this. Um, he's very artful and very powerful, and there are aspects of his approach that, you know, he's proven a point, which is he always counterpunches no matter what. Um, and it, for him, it works for him, um, and it makes him uh, satisfied that he's uh, had an opportunity to correct something that he thinks was either unfair or inaccurate. Okay. So far, it's worked. Other people handle it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have to wrap. I do want to ask. Um, I also know. think in this new era, there's no such thing as hyperbole. That True. Everything is just the greatest and the best and never been done before. And, hey, uh, you know, different people can have different views on that. So you're a strategist. How does the uh, GOP count big wins? How do they win in a big way in 2018? Boy, that's a tough one. Um, They've got to get more legislation passed, but that's not all. I mean, we have to stay focused on being safe. And um, there's a phrase that's a little impolite uh, in warfare and in business, which is um, putting the boot on the neck of the enemy and keeping the pressure on ISIS and on other uh, similar enemies is a huge achievement. Um, the best defense is a strong offense. I mean, I just believe that with every fiber of my body, and I've seen it in action. Uh, so whatever we're doing right, keep doing it, and whatever we can do better, keep doing it. You know, one thing about Secretary Rumsfeld at the Pentagon was that he always challenged himself and the institution every day to 
rethink its assumptions and try to find a better and stronger way to to execute the mission that he had been assigned and earned. And I, so he was intellectually always challenging himself and everyone around him. It was fascinating to watch. I mean, tremendous intellect and energy level for a guy who was in his 70s and still outworking everybody around him and just incredible uh, to watch you know um, we all have our warts and uh, not everybody's personality fits for everyone but boy there were some really admirable pieces of that and him working with Vice President Cheney to um, help uh, keep the National Security Council informed uh, uh, and and leaning forward and giving their best advice to the president, who is the ultimate decider. And then, okay, as a strategist and knowing what you know, how does the Democratic Party win in 2018 and 2020 if you if you had to? Okay, so I just chose national security as something that the Republicans should be uh, executing well in, in a meaningful way, not just a strategy or a campaign, you know, set of, it's actually fundamentally important. And then keeping... Uh, doing everything we can to keep the economy moving. Uh, you know, government only has so much impact, but it can have some and already has under President Trump. So that's how Republicans can perform. And obviously, it's all about the battle for control of Congress, really. And in the typical out year, which is the first off cycle for a new incumbent president, the party in power, quote unquote, doesn't do very well, that the cards are stacked against them. Well, this is a guy who's, uh, you know, uh, beat all the odds so far. And it's not just about him, but it's also, you know, the economy. Um, it's the uh, who can build a coalition that gets to 50 percent plus one, because that's all that matters is winning, ultimately, um, if you want to have influence going forward. It's not just about power, but uh, if you believe in a set of ideas that you can agree on, as a party, and there's a huge split in both parties right now. That's why this is an interesting cycle. It's uh, near fratricide level in both parties, <laughs> and so there's a lot of there's going to be some uh, you know soul searching and uh, apologies made and knitting together, hopefully. Um, and whoever does a better job, it has a it has not just a, a message uh, that resonates, but also a messenger. And right now, the Democrats don't have one. All right. Well, thank you. We do have to get out of here because they go live at 6 o'clock with Sports Beat. And so um, I thank you uh, for being here and and sharing your time and your expertise and your thoughts with uh, with us and our, and our audience. And I have a whole bunch more questions <laughs> to ask, but we didn't. Well, we'll get back around to it. I was honored to do it. And believe me, sports is always more interesting. <laughs> Four Five Seven SEO is produced in the WOUB Public Media Telemix Studio. Adam Rich is the audio supervisor. Aaron Payne is our editor, and Nathan McGuire created the music. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, NPR One, and woub.org/listen. Go ahead and follow WOUB News on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Aaron Payne, and I'm Allison Hunter. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. And I'm